Welcome to the Idea Climbing Podcast. I'm your host, Mark J. Carter. And today we're going to discuss the science of writing and marketing a best-selling book. We'll talk about how the New York Times, Amazon, and other major sellers count how many books you sell, the four pillars of successfully marketing your book, how to avoid being a douchebag marketer, and the 12-step marketing process that maps out your customer's journey and culminates in book sales and growth in other areas of your business. And I'm very excited today to be joined by Michael Drew, who is a leading book marketer in the publishing industry, propelling 99 consecutive books onto national bestseller lists, including the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and the New York Times, and garnering over 1,000 number one rankings for books on Amazon through his ProFluent services. Thank you for being on the Idea Climbing Podcast today, Michael. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And you have 99 bestsellers. 90 of them are New York Times bestsellers that you've marketed and promoted to get to that status. What's a, the brief story of how did you get into that? That's a great question. I went from uh, being homeless and selling drugs to being a publisher to um, – as a publisher, uh, being asked by my my boss to figure out how the bestseller list works, um, the the uh, gentleman was uh, my, my boss's name was Bar uh, Ray Bard of Bard Press, and he said to me my first day on the job, he said, uh, "Michael, we publish business authors. What our authors want more than anything else in the world is to be a Wall Street Journal, USA Today, or New York Times bestseller. What I want you to do is go figure out how the bestseller list works." And I was 19 and a half then, and as a young, naive 19 year old, I'm like, "Sure, I could do that." And the first book I worked on was by a gentleman by the name of Roy H. Williams. He's known as the Wizard of Ads. And with the uh, information I was able to gather, I was able to launch Secret Formulas uh, number three on the New York Times and number one on the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list. And that was 21 years ago. It's been a heck of a career since then. <laughs> it has been. It really has been. What is it? <clears throat> that most people don't realize about creating a bestseller? What are like the myths or things they just don't know about it, do you think? Well, so the first thing to understand is that the New York Times, Washington Journal, and USA Today bestsellers list are not real bestsellers list. And even technologies like BookScan, which are supposed to track sales point of purchase, only represent about 70% of actual sales. And what most people don't realize is, is that each of the bestsellers are a, essentially a sophisticated pool with their own rule set for how they, um, compile, they, they compile their lists. Not every book that is sold is reported. Not every book that is reported is counted. Not every book that is counted is counted equally. So each retailer has their own standard for how they report sales. And if you don't hit their standards, then you don't get the book reported. Each bestsellers list has their own algorithm for um, which sales are going to count and in what weighting. So even if you get a retailer to report to the New York Times, not every book that is reported is going to be counted. And not every book that is counted is going to be counted equally. So um, one of the rules that the New York Times uh, currently, from a, an algorithm standpoint, is that they weight the sales based on the weight of the retailer in terms of overall industry sales. So Amazon represented, and we'll see uh, it for last year, 2019, how many it was, but 2018, they represented about 16.7, 16.8% of all sales. So they're the number one book retailer in the world and in the United States. The um, number two book retailer is Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble is at like 11.8, 11.9% of sales. So they're roughly 50% less in sales than Amazon. So the in uh, relationship to each other, 
Amazon will get, um, for every one book that is counted here, they'll get 70% of, of a sale here. So you'll get seven out of 10 sales that are reported being counted by the New York Times, whereas you'll get uh, from, from Barnes & Noble, whereas you'll get 10 out of 10 sales reported from Amazon uh, counted by the New York Times. And that then sk um, scales down to Books A Million, which is the third largest retailer, and then some of the bigger um, uh, block, uh, um, some of the bigger chains like um, Walmart, Walmart or Costco or some of those other uh, chains will then be even smaller in comparison to the number one retailer, Amazon. And so each retailer has their, again, their own criteria for reporting sales. So um, uh, Barnes & Noble might have a criteria that says that they need to see um, 10 copies of your book sold at 100 of their 660 superstores in order for them to report those, in order to report sales to the New York Times. So in theory, you could sell two copies of your book at all 660 stores, sell more than if you sold 10 at 100 stores, but never have any of those sales reported to the New York Times. And then in turn, Barnes Double sales will be about 30% less than, um, account, 30% accounted less than the sales from Amazon. Um, but you can't just put all your sales through Amazon either because other standards include the number of reporting channels, the number of online versus uh, retail uh, reporting channels, and the number of independents that are reporting as well. So you have a, a series of um, rules that apply when it pertains to uh, qualifying for the New York Times. So that's, that's just in terms of the algorithm for sales. Um, over my career, uh, by 21 year career, there's been a, a series of major changes at the New York Times. And again, I want to stress that the New York Times is essentially a today a sophisticated poll. They're not they're not really looking at what's the, the whole market is is purchasing and buying or regionally or, or beyond. Um, when I started off my career, you could make the New York Times uh, list with just a couple of retailers. So we use Barnes Noble and Amazon. That was all we had to do. We put all of our sales and all of our promotions into those two channels. Well, that was 21 years ago. Uh, a few years after that, they then increased the number of reporting channels that were needed to three and then to five, and then they needed um, three of the major chains, and then they needed to have at least 20 independents reporting, and they've changed the, the, the retail standards over the years. And in 2017, um, actually, pardon me, 2010, they added in additional standards. So it's not just reporting uh, retailers, but it was then the number of books on the shelf. And their argument, not unreasonable, is that if they see a bunch of sales coming through for a book, but um, they don't see enough books on retail shelves, how could that, that be possible? So starting in about 2010, um, the, the basic rule of thumb with the New York Times is that in any given week, they um, did not want to see um, more than 70% of, of books on shelves being reported as sales to the New York Times, so 70% of books on shelf. If you get above that number, then it raises a red flag and they may exclude the book from the list. Um, Good. So when people get, if they're, they're writing, if someone's writing a book right now or they're almost done, when do you start planning the marketing strategy and what does that look like? My advice and suggestion is always to do it at the same time, right? Um, you need to align your marketing and your book writing, especially in nonfiction. Normally the reason that you would write or uh, promote a book as a nonfiction author is because you're building your business. You're building what we call a marketing platform. And therefore, when you write the book, your objective should be to tie into a business objective, a lead generation objective, or increasing speaking fees or consulting fees or um, to, as a lead generation process or to differentiate yourself from your competitors. And so if that's the case, if you're using it to build your, your marketing platform, then you need to know what the outcome is so that the book 
properly supports that. If your outcome is to increase leads and you write a book that's a general, a, a general branding book for your company, the, the broad does not help the specific and therefore it makes it harder to tie in the, the content of the book back into your direct business objective. So if you're writing a nonfiction, this is mainly the, the area I work in, I've only done two works of fiction in my career. Um, if you're working in nonfiction, then the first thing you have to do is define your business outcome. Then you need to define how the book um, and the content of the book would fit and support that business outcome. And then the bridge between the two is the marketing campaign, um, in our case, the bestseller campaigns, that bridge between the book and the business outcome. So I prefer to start working with a client at the very beginning when we're looking at even architecting what the book might be as, as it pertains to the business outcome for their business. Right um, now, the, one of the things, and, and Tucker Max, uh, the, who inscribed, is really passionate about this, and I fully agree. Um, you want to make sure that you write a really, really, really good book. Um, I, I abhor the idea that you should use your book as a business card. Not at all. My hmm. only additive to it being a really, really good book is make sure that it's a really, really good book that ties directly into your business outcome. Otherwise, if there's too far of a, a space between business outcome and the book, um, it's going to make creating that outcome a much more difficult and more expensive proposition. How do you align them when you, when you, with the outcome, with the book, what ways get, should people be aware that they need to align them? Um, well, first of all, you define outcome, right? What is your business outcome? If you can define what the business outcome is, then you should be able to define the content strategy around that a book is just a part of a strategy and then the book then becomes a tactic so then if you know the outcome like you're trying to do lead generation and you're in wealth management okay what kind of lead are you trying to generate are you selling life insurance are you selling um uh, you know selling stocks and bonds what what is it that you're selling so if you then sell uh a for you know life insurance then you want to be able to figure out how to write a book that argues the need for life insurance. And likely, it's not going to be a, a general argument for life insurance, but more likely a targeted uh, argument for, for life insurance like bank on yourself um, and some of the other more specific forms of, of, uh, of investing through life insurance, right? So it'll be specific, you'll have your little hook, and then you write the book as the argument as to why people need that form of investment over other forms of invest investments, security, the safety, your angle of approach, your hook, why it would give you security um, for your family beyond creating uh, an investment that, that, um, that the government won't take, take from you in the future, that kind of thing. So you figure out the outcome and then you figure out the messaging tactic and then you write the book to be able to fit that. And then the marketing is what bridges the two. And when the book is written, what are a few of the, the content marketing or the marketing strategies that people need to use to increase sales? So the first thing I would say is make it a really good book. And what I would tell you, all effective communication have four elements. We, um, we call them the four pillars of effective communication. And most writers in both marketing and in writing books usually do only two or three of the four. So the, the four pillars of effective communication are number one, what's the big idea? What's new, surprising, or different? What's going to move the needle in the who gives a crap meter, right? Why should I pick up this book? The second is, what is the story that you're going to be telling? The, 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 the thread that holds the book together that humanizes the point that you're making. The third is the nuts and bolts. And this is, this is the practical application. So you may get, get me excited with a big idea. You may tell me an engaging story. But if I, as the reader, cannot implement what it is that you're teaching, 
then you're giving, you're, you're frustrating me as the reader and making the book read difficult or impossible for me to read or to want to read. So what are the step-by-step processes for me to implement what it is that you're teaching so that I can do it myself? Whether I do it or not is a separate issue, but I need to know that you're so codified in your processes and systems within the book that I can see how it would work and that in theory, if I wanted to, I could implement it. And the fourth element is the hope. What's the outcome? If I implement what I just learned and what you inspired me to do, what is the outcome that I'm going to achieve in making that happen, right? So what is the hope? Tell me on the, the hope. And you want to do that not only from a macro standpoint within the book, but also in every single chapter. You want to make sure you've got a big idea per chapter, the story, the nuts and the nuts and bolts and the hope for each and every chapter. Um, and the thread between all the chapters should be the, the story and the, and the big idea. Um, so that's, that's one part. It's having good content. Now, here's the thing. You, you asked about what should you do. The, the, the reality is it's about building your business. So if you're in real estate um, versus in life insurance versus in other forms of financial investing versus leadership versus sales versus marketing versus website creation, right? Your, your platform, your audience is going to be distinctly different. How you reach out to your audience is going to vary from one um, platform and one business model to the next. So th that's a, a little bit more difficult to be able to define. But what I would say is beyond having really good material is number one, know who your audience is, not just demographically, but psychographically. Um, there are uh, a couple of my authors, Brian Jeffrey Eisenberg, created a process called persona architecture, which is the idea of taking demographics and psychographics, uh, borrowing from Hollywood and creating fictional characters that represent the different segments of your audience and then mapping out the customer journey so that you know who they are, what their interest is, why they, why they would want to buy, what their touch points are, and what language from a psychographic standpoint they want to be able to hear, feel, and see going along that buyer journey. So the first thing is identify who your customer is in great detail and then map out the customer journey. And what's important to note in marketing, um, we, we look at two kinds of marketers. We look at the douchebag marketers and the relationship marketers. And the douchebag marketers are commonly referred to as direct, direct response marketers. And that's because the direct response marketers end up doing um, douchebaggery. They, they end up being pickup artists. And their objective, just like a pickup artist, is to get into their customer's pants, only in this case to pull out their wallets. So when we look at it, um, you could be the douchebag direct response marketer or you can be a relationship marketer. And if you're in the business of influence and thought leadership, then the question that I would pose to your audience is this. Um, would you ever hire a psychologist or therapist using those same direct response tactics that you're using? And if the answer is no, then you shouldn't do that to your customer as well. And in fact, the answer for any type of thought leadership or influence should be no. You would never hire a therapist because the reality is in thought leadership and influence, you are a personal or business therapist. You are doing some form of therapy. Even if you offer service, if you are giving advice about the body or the mind of an organization, it is the exact same process that your therapist would go through with you. So the first thing is to be able to identify um, when mapping out the customer journey to identify the direct response tactics versus the relational tactics, and then to implement relational tactics, um, recognizing that building a relationship takes more effort and more time, but also increases what we call the LTV or the lifetime value. I don't look at short-term conversion with a business or a client of ours. I look at the LTV, the lifetime value, in terms of what actual success is. So what are some of those relationship tactics that people should use in the long term? Um, so again, business model, tactic versus strategy or principle are two different things. Um, I, it's hard to define a tactic without defining strategy first and outcome. 
and also from one industry to the next. Some are some work very well online, some work very well in person, some do a hybrid of the two. So the, the model that we follow, look, a direct response process is to follow, uh, is to implement a funnel. A funnel is a push process to push customers into taking action. Um, so that's, that's the process of selling. I believe that in relational marketing, you look at what we call conversion. Conversion is distinctly different than selling. Conversion is the process of helping you take the action that you already defined that you wanted to take. Selling is convincing somebody to take an action that they hadn't previously determined they wanted to take. So it's not about pushing them to take an action, but rather about pulling, giving them the information that they need to take the action that they've already determined that they want to take. So the, the principle that we apply in that, and this comes back to the concept of business topology, right? Um, business topology states that if you're looking for an, a solution to an industry-wide problem, you don't look in the industry. So if you want to look at a problem in the uh, in business and, and, and marketing uh, as a problem, and you look at the old school format of direct response, uh, district marketing, well, you're not going to find the solution in marketing. You have to look into a different industry. This goes back to how Henry Ford um, discovered the assembly line. Some of your, your um, listeners will, will know but um, in order to increase the production of cars, um, Henry Ford knew he had to look outside of, of the auto, uh, auto manufacturing industry. And so he looked around for several years trying to find a solution. And one of his friends in Chicago invited him up to his uh, butcher, butchery. And this was a large um, industrial butchery. And this uh, process has been around for thousands of years. And when he went in, what he found was that there was one butcher, one person with one knife, for, to cut out each part of the cow or the pig. So one person for the head, one person for each of the legs, one person for the organs, one person for the different cuts of meat with, uh, within the body of the cow or the, the pig. And so it was a disassembly line. So all he did, taking from butchery, is he said, let's, let's reverse that and let's have one person putting one, one item onto the, the car at a time, and thus the assembly line, uh, assembly line was born. Now, he looked out of his industry. He had no, you know, butchers and eating meat had nothing to do with building automotion. Similarly, in marketing, we had, um, my uh, co-author, Roy Williams, looked um, outside of marketing to find um, a solution to the idea of building a relationship. And the area that we settled on was marriage counseling. And marriage counseling is based, uh, today, modern uh, marriage counseling is commonly based on the work of a gentleman by the name of Desmond Morris. Desmond Morris was a zoologist and a clinical researcher. And back in the late 1950s, early 1960s, there was a genuine biological question about the homeostasis primate as to whether we were a promiscuous or pair bonded species of primate. And you see, the, all primates have a huge range in terms of uh, promiscuity versus pair bonded. The bonobos um, will have intercourse with anything and anyone, inanimate objects, other species, whatever. The chimps and the gorillas will have one or two mates for life. And you can tell how promiscuous or bonded a species of primate is, usually enough, by the size of, of the, the male genitalia of that species uh, in, in proportion to the body. Well, the homeostasian primate, uh, in, in, um, in, in relationship to all other primates, was smack in between. So there's this genuine question about whether or not we're a promiscuous or parabond species of primate. And so the research that Desmond Morris did discovered that homeostasians have emotion and prefer, prefer the security of emotion and therefore a pair by relationship, even though they still desire promiscuity. So we then did the next level of research and said, well then what for the homeostasian primate where emotion is that, that getting factor, um, what then defines a long-term versus a short-term relationship for a pair bonded uh, uh, couple? 
And so what he discovered was that at the foundational level of all long-term relationships, that the couple followed 12 fundamental steps of intimacy. And if that the couple skipped more than one step, so any two or more steps, that the probability of that being a long-term relationship was less than 3%. I know for the direct response marketers listening, 3% is a really good conversion rate because you're acting like a pickup artist. You're not valuing the relationship. But going back to that, um, the, the analogy that, that why that would happen and why um, if you skip more than one step is the same as literally the same as having a one night sound. If you skip more than one step, it's, you'd have to think about laying tile. This was the example that he gave. If you lay tile at um, the beginning of the room and you're half an inch off by the other end of the room, you're going to be a foot to several feet off. You just don't see the, the separation that happens over time. So um, we, we asked the question, is there a psychological and physiological difference between people building a pair bonded relationship and people building business relationships? And the answer is human beings are not physiologically or psychologically different in one situation over the other. The steps, the, 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 the actions may be slightly different, but the principle is the same. And so um, what we advocate is the intentionality of applying the, the 12 steps of intimacy from a relationship building standpoint into a business building, customer building relationship standpoint. So how does that apply to the book marketing? Well, so great question. In marketing, um, most people focus on the currency of money, but in reality, there are four currencies that we exchange, time, energy, information, and money. And any of those currencies can be a greater currency than money. Money can be the biggest currency, but often not. So when you look at book marketing, what is the biggest currency you're asking your customer to spend? Their time to read it. Their time to read it. So if your audience, if they don't know me, and I on this interview said, go buy my book and read it, um, and, it take, and the book would take them four, six, or eight hours to read, they spent a very short period of time with you and I on this call, they don't really know me, it's inappropriate to go from an interview to say, buy my, spend four, six, or eight hours to read my book. It's too big of a jump, right? If in normal media, if I'm on TV or radio and I spend three minutes to 20 minutes talking to you, it's inappropriate. It's a big step, it's a big leap to go from that amount of time investment into four hours, six hours, eight hours to read the book. So what you have to look at is, in the relationship building process, when can you ask them to buy the book? And in terms of the 12 steps, we never ask for the currency of money until step eight. And depending on the sophistication of the audience, is it a general consumer audience or is it say entrepreneurs and CEOs and business owners, we normally don't ask for, for anybody to buy a book until, the, until step nine because, not, because time is a much bigger uh, commodity to someone at that level than a more general audience at step eight. And so literally, if you think about it, if you're selling a book at step eight or step nine, you've got to go from one to eight or nine. And there's seven steps that happened before that. So what that requires you to do then is to map out every one of those steps that precede it. So you can go from one. Step one is advertising. This is where all marketing and advertising happens. So if you go from being seen on TV or radio or a Facebook ad or Google ad or in an email or anything else, that's a step one. If you go from that, you've got another six steps before you get to step eight, right? One, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, right? For a general consumer. So you have to actually map out. So I just spent five minutes on TV or radio or whatever medium with that audience. What can I ask them to do next? What currency, time or energy or information um, so that I get them to invest into that 
equal relationship bank account, right? Because what you're building with an audience is a bank account. So one of the things that a relational bank account, one of the things that we don't ever ask or have our clients do when marketing a book, when on media, is tell their customers to go buy the book at the retailers. Instead, we send them back to the, my client's website. And we get them to read blogs or white papers or take assessments or do other things that require smaller investments that then allow us to be able to engage that audience to the point where ultimately we can ask them to buy the book. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, it's So r- really briefly, what are the other steps? There's advertising. So um, step one is eye to body. I see the beautiful woman. The, the beautiful woman does not see me right? Eye to body. The only thing that that woman controls is how she presents herself. Just like in advertising, if you are in someone else's medium, not your list, not your website, the only thing you can control is how you present yourself. So that's advertising and marketing. Step two is eye to eye. I see the beautiful woman, the beautiful woman sees me. This is where the concept of flirting comes up. And in marketing, this would be, um, again, you've got to think about as I go through this, because you want me to go through quickly, what exchange of currency, time, energy, information, or money. Money's not going to happen until eight or nine, sometimes later, depending on what we're selling. And so what we're looking at, if one was advertising, let's say it was a Google ad. Well, if I, if I as a customer see something about you, I click on it, then we're talking about it step to the landing page. And if you do it right, I mentioned earlier the, the concept of buyer personas, then you know which buyer persona is going to search that phrase or term and why they did it, you know, what's behind why they, they researched that phrase. And so that you can state on that page in the language of the customer, what's important to the customer about that question, all of the information that you need to be able to, to establish trust so that you help the customer, the, uh, the, the other person feel virtually seen. What we're doing is emulating in the non-intimate environment, what we do in an intimate environment. And so then we, the next step would be voice to voice in the real world. I would, I would walk up to the woman and have a conversation. If I walk up to her and kiss her, I'm going to get smacked and rightfully so. And if I don't, then what she's communicating to me is that she wants a transaction and that's not going to be a long-term relationship. Sometimes transaction, transactions can be fun, but as a business owner in influencer thought leadership, my objective is to help my customer and as is yours to not feel objectified by me. Right. And so what we look at then is voice to voice, natural to have a conversation. And the, the point of this process is to be able to help the customer feel seen and heard. Right. They don't they don't want to be sold. Nobody wants to be sold and nobody wants you to move directly into solution. They just want to know that they're seen and heard. And if they're seen and heard, then they're going to be more willing to invest back into that relationship with you. OK. So then you go from voice to voice to hand to hand. Right. Whether that's shaking a hand or when you play footsies under the table or you, you, you skew your hand over and your pinky touches their pinky, it's that first physical contact in the real world that exchanges energy between the two parties to let them know if there's real energy and interest between the two parties. In business, most of the uh, douchebag marketers, direct response marketers, they make the mistake of doing squeeze pages at this point. But I, I abhor squeeze pages and this is too early. It's like asking a woman for her phone number too early in, the, in that, that flirting process. So um, if you were to ask for a business card or rather a opt-in at this point, it would be like me speaking on a big stage in front of a thousand people, people coming up to me afterwards, asking me a question and me telling them, well, I'll answer your question, but only after you give me your business card, right? That would violate the ability for me to build a relationship with most of those people. Most of them would be offended. Nobody wants, nobody wants to feel like I'm looking at them as, as a lead. They want to feel that they're looked at as a person. Right. So we don't do opt-ins here. We, we think that's the wrong idea. So we'll give more, more uh, content. 
And again, we're looking for that exchange of, of um, investment in that relationship. So we'll do white papers and reports, maybe slightly longer podcasts at this point, something that requires a little bit more investment of time by the customer, or we'll do what we call a reverse opt-in. So reverse opt-ins cover steps four and five. And so what we'll do is we'll do a, an online assessment. You might see some of these, like what kind of Disney princess are you? Or what kind of Disney character are you? What kind of Star Wars character are you on Facebook and other places? And you take the quiz and says, you're Obi-Wan Kenobi or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, we, we tailor these to our, our customers. So we did this with John Maxwell and we did what kind of leader are you? And then we, we take the client's content and then we um, apply Myers-Briggs because what we want to do is split the, the customer database into four different uh, segments based on the Myers-Briggs temperament, the MT competitive, the SP spontaneous, the SJ methodical, and the NF uh, humanistic. So the competitive is the intuitive thinker, the spontaneous is the sensing perceiving type, the uh, methodical is the sensing judging type, and the uh, humanistic is the intuitive feeling type. So that when they, so what we do is we then take them through the quiz. We don't ask them to opt in, and we give them a result. So it's this exchange first. It's let me um, get a little bit of information from you, and then let me tell you about you. Let me give you a massive amount of value about you. And when we, so that once we then take them to their results page without opting in, because we're we're tailoring Myers Briggs and your content together, we're able to say like. In the example of John Maxwell, you are a competitive leader. Here's all of your good and bad traits. Here's what you like, here's what you dislike, and here's what your gaps are, right? So we tell you all about you. And then we say at the end of that, would you like to know more about you? If you opt in, we will, we will give you three videos that will help you as a competitive be a better leader, right? So we've delivered maximum value in exchange of um, their information for the Myers-Briggs. But by, in this case, the reverse opt-in, by uh, gathering the Myers-Briggs temperament, the results pages then are written in the language because every psychographic is a different language set that they prefer, is written in the language of the customer so that every communication henceforth is written in the language of the customer. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. So that a humanistic always gets humanistic content in their language about what we know that that's important to them. Same thing with competitive, spontaneous, and methodical. So, we do a reverse opt-in where the front end step four, which again is, is hand to hand, is the, the quiz and the result. We then ask at the end of that for the opt-in, which is at step five. And at step five, we'll deliver more content specific to the persona. So if we gave a three video training to the competitive, that three video training for free is going to be specifically designed for the competitive. What we give the humanistic will be specifically designed for the, the humanistic and so forth. And so, um, that way we're able to have this exchange. Now, what's interesting and what's important is the first four steps of intimacy are based are around the idea of helping your customer feel seen and heard. The next steps, five through eight, are about helping your customers know one thing. And before I say what that, what that is, I'm going to go back to a study that AWeber did, uh, the CRM with Copyblogger. Uh, it was about six years, seven years ago now. And um, what Copyblogger did is they went in and they evaluated all subject lines across every medium and every client that Aweber had, trying to find some data and consistencies and find out if there were things like certain subject lines that worked across industry. And surprisingly, they found a subject line that worked across industry um, at an 80% or better open rate. And that, um, that subject line worked for Viagra, it worked for selling candy, it worked for selling books, it worked for selling bicycles. What was that? In every industry. And it's what steps five through eight are. You are not alone. 
The objectives of steps five through eight are to help the customer feel that they are not alone. So they're seen and heard to begin with, and then steps five through eight is helping the customer feel that they are not alone. What comes so, after eight? Well, it's, it's at step eight, starting at step nine, that's when we can start giving solutions, right? That's when we can start, eight or nine is when we can start taking a little, a little bit of money. It's, it, once we've helped them feel seen and heard, steps one through four, once we can help them feel that they're not alone, then in step nine through 10, we can start offering them solutions. But what most direct response to by marketers do is they try to offer, they try to skip steps to be able to get to the money, the currency of money in, in those steps. And what we know to be true, if you don't want your customer to feel objectified, is that, that you, and you want to have an LTV, lifetime value with them, then you want to take them through those first steps before you get to um, steps nine through 12. And what's important to note is that the average website converts at 2.64%. Um, a really good direct response conversion rate is at 3%. But 80% of the people that come to your, to your website are there because they believe you might have a solution to a problem that they have. Now, tw roughly 20% of your customers are there errantly or on accident or for reasons other than they're looking for a solution. But about 80% of all customers on your website are there because they believe that you have a solution to, your, to a problem. So if you're only converting at 3% and you know 80% of the people on your website are there because they believe you, you have the solution to a problem, that tells us something. That tells us that you're not communicating to your customer. You don't know them well enough. You don't know the, the, the journey that they need to go on to establish trust with you. Those 80% want to convert, right? They absolutely want to convert. Now, of the 80%, I'm not saying you're going to close 80%, there's going to be a certain percentage of the people that come to your site that just don't like you or aren't ready or will never be ready to work with you, but they like the material or need what you're, you're having to offer. But if you're not at the 10 to 20% conversion rate with your customer, that means that you, you don't understand them and that you're allowing short-term conversion to outweigh long-term relationship, right? Which is why these 12 steps are so important. So when you move from step four, which is, hand to hand to hand to shoulder. So you're pulling the person in, which I explained was the back end of the reverse opt-in. Um, what you're doing is you're pulling the customer slowly, ever slowly closer to you as you help them feel that they're not alone and you're, you're getting, helping them feel more comfortable with themselves and with the situation that's going on. Right, so, so that's step five is, is, is arm to shoulder. You then move in to, from there, you move into hand to waist. I've got it. I could certainly take the, the, the woman who's on, on my shoulder and try to swing her around and kiss her, but we're going to bump foreheads and break noses and do other things that aren't so pleasant. Um, so I need to kindly softly position her in front of me and put my hand around, around her waist. Now, both in the, in the real world and in an interpersonal relationship standpoint, but also in business, by following the 12 steps, what you're able to do is communicate intention to the other part of it. And especially in business in non-intimate environments, which is what marketing and advertising is, it's, it's communication in non-intimate environments, you want to let the customer move at the speed that they're most comfortable with, as quickly or as slowly. But what you don't ever want to do is ask them to skip a step. They can skip a step if they choose, but you want to be respectful of them so they never feel objectified. And so when you position them in front of you, when you go methodically through these steps or allow them to do that, then you're communicating intent and you allow the other party to, to work at their speed, fast or slow, right? And therefore they're gonna come back because it, especially if you do a good job understanding them, um, they're gonna come back to continue to build that relationship. So hand to waste, letting and communicating to the party what you're going to do. So at step six, we might do um, 
a webinar, right? We might uh, tailor to the persona. So we might go from a solution step five with three videos to now that we've given you these solutions, let's really uh, dig deep and we'll do four webinars, one for what we call buyer persona, one for the competitive, one for the spontaneous, one for the methodical, and one for the humanistic because it's all about the set. It's all about keeping the individual feeling that you're talking to them in their language about what's important to them. And so you, you take each persona through their own scenario. And so we may take them to a, uh, a webinar at step six where we're asking them to spend a little bit more time and energy invested into content specifically designed for them. So that's hand to waste. Step seven in uh, Desmond Morris's world is hand to face. Um, and ha putting some, your, your hand on someone's face is one of the most intimate things you can do, whether that be a significant other, whether that be a sibling, whether that be a child, right? It's really intimate to be able to put your hand on someone's face. Again, um, if it's with someone that, that you're intimate with, it's communicating what you're going to do. Um, and in this case, the, again, what we're looking at throughout the entire process is what is the exchange of time, energy, information, or money? And uh, at this case, we may do a, if we have a program at step eight, we may do a free trial, a three, five, or seven day trial of that program, or, or a challenge, a three, five, or seven day challenge with content similar to what we're gonna give them in the overall, pro, uh, in the overall program. So, and so we'd give them a, a challenge slightly tailored from one buyer persona to the next based on varying of approach and their needs. And then you get to step eight. Step eight is kissing. And of course, from here, we know that things, either they stop or they, they move faster. It, you know, if you or listeners have ever kissed somebody and felt like they were kissing a cousin or a sister or a brother, you know, that it, it gets uncomfortable really fast. And, you, and that's where that, that stops. Same What's thing the, in business. People are going to know if they like you or not based on what you do at eight. And so it's kind of the, the uh, make or break. It's, 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 it's the equivalent of kissing. So um, if you're going B to C, if you're selling something to consumers, then you could sell a book here. And normally what we do when we sell a book is we sell um, an, online, uh, an online program with it, either the online program for $99 to $169, or we sell the, 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 we sell the program and include the book, or we, we sell the book and include the program for free. Um, but and you that's can step nine? 99 to 169, not, not more than that. Again, it, it depends on the, which other currencies you're asking for, how much time, how much energy, how much information, how much money are you asking for at that step. You can't ask for a lot of all the currencies at step eight. You can ask for a little bit of all of them or a bit of one or a medium amount of two. But you can't ask for, for a lot of all four because you're not yet, in terms of that exchange of currency, you're not at the point where the relationship is deep enough to be able to ask for a lot of, uh, of more than one currency. Um, so you could ask for a book purchase. You could do a free four-hour event. And what's important, what's important about that is, is you have to consider your, your clients' currencies across the board. So if you hold a four-hour event that sells into other events or other content or coaching or training or whatever it is, consider that they have to come to the event. So they have to get there and they have to drive home. If they have if they have pets or children, they likely have to arrange for uh, childcare or pet care to be able to do that. And even if the, um, the part that's coming has a significant other that can take care of the kids or um, the pets, there's still a psychological investment by the other party in watching the kids or the pets. So there's more invested into coming to an event than just the time of the event. There's the things, things that happened around it. So those are parts of the considerations that we make throughout the process. So when you get them to step eight, just to close things out really briefly, what is, what is the, are the last few steps? So you, you step eight is, is kissing. Step nine is hand to body, call it heavy petting. What would that be here, in business? 
Um, it's going to change from business to business, but you can ask for a full day of someone's time. You could ask for a couple thousand dollars. Um, most at step nine, most actual therapy happens here. Like if you go to a therapist, you're paying 250 to 500. Um, you're doing that every week or every month. That fits in a step nine because you're sharing a lot of deep information. So again, it's a matter of what, what are you asking them to do? Or are you asking them to spend time, energy, or money? Kind of have to define that for your business. Again, therapy is going to be at step nine or 10 most of the time because of the amount of information intimately that is being shared. Step 10 goes from hand to body to mouth to body. And we can be adults and people can define that as they will, but mouth to body, again, more intimate. Here we can ask for up to say $10,000 in, in, in cash. We can ask for two or three days of time. We can ask for more intimate information. Um, we can ask for a medium amount of all of them, right? We can't ask for a lot of all of them. We can ask for a lot of one. We can ask for a medium amount of all. Step 11 is, um, um, before we have sex, it's up 12, which is your major product. It's um, being naked. And um, th that means being open and transparent. Now, I will tell you when I build businesses, um, the platforms for my clients, they have to be naked in the business sense in terms of showing me everything that's going on, but their finances, their marketing, their employees, their location. I have to know everything about them in order to be able to help. And they have to be um, in a business sense naked to me and my organization in order for us to be able to help them. I'll give you one example that I'll, I'll finish off. Um, I have a, a client um, who, um, his name is Brian Martin. He wrote um, a book on, um, the, on redefining what it means to be a child of domestic violence. And through his research, um, he was able to define that um, if you're, if you are not personally, um, physically or emotionally abused, but your parents fought with each other or with other people in front of the child, that they would suffer from psychological damage, maybe not intentional, but that, um, that it, they would suffer psychological damage that would need therapy. And about a third of, of adult Americans would be, um, under his definition defined as children of domestic violence. And he's actually pushing a redefinition of that. And our step 11 within his process was to get adults to share their story of being a child of domestic violence. And so you can appreciate that if you're sharing a story publicly with other people, that there's a real sense of being naked in sharing that very intimate personal story. And so the final, the final is step 12, which in Desmond Morris's world would be uh, intercourse in the world of business. This would be your pen to ultimate product service. This is the, the few people are going to get there. Oftentimes this, this product or service um, sets the context of the value for everything else. And it represents the, the largest and most uh, robust product or service that you offer. So those are the 12 steps, but a book in that context is in the middle. Now a book can be repurposed um, to be other shorter form content steps one through seven. A book can be referenced and used and expanded upon in steps nine through 12. So a book serves a really important purpose, but in terms of its marketability, it's really about understanding when you can promote that book to an audience. Excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. My pleasure. If people want to reach you, where can they find you? Um, they can email me at michael at uh, profluent.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L at P-R-O-F-L-U-E-N-T.com. Um, they can also reach me on my cell. 512-586-6073. Thank you very much. I hope some people reach out to learn more about your services. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to go to ideaclimbing.com to learn more about idea climbing and hear other conversations about mentoring, marketing, and more.